Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a raspberry white claw. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a vodka soda, and this episode starts off a month of episodes based on crimes that took place in our home state of New Jersey. Today, we're discussing Howard Unruh, one of the first recorded mass shooters in American history. Howard Unruh was born January 20th, 1921 in East Camden, New Jersey. He and his younger brother, James, were raised by their mother, Frida, following their parents' separation. Unruh was described as shy, and he enjoyed stamp collecting and model train building. In 1942, Unruh enlisted in the U.S. Army. He served as an armor crewman throughout Europe from the fall of 1944 to the summer of 1945. Unruh followed orders well and was described as a quote-unquote world-class soldier. He had even won marksmanship and sharpshooters ratings. He was not known to chase women with his fellow soldiers, instead opting to read the Bible and write letters to his mother. He was also known to take detailed notes of every German he killed. According to Smithsonian Magazine, he would mark down the day, hour, and place, and when circumstances allowed, described the corpses in disturbing, bloody detail. Unruh was awarded several medals before being honorably discharged. His brother and father would later say that serving in the war changed him. Following his discharge, Unruh returned to New Jersey and lived with his mother. His apartment was adorned with items from his time in the war, and he had put together a target range in the basement to practice shooting. Unruh worked as a sheet metal worker for a short period of time before enrolling in the Temple University School of Pharmacy in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He left school not long after, starting due to quote-unquote poor physical condition. Unruh did not have any friends in his neighborhood, and many viewed him as nice yet odd. He was angry and often complained about his neighbors in his journal. He had particular issues with his neighbors, the Cohen family. Maurice Cohen was a druggist with a shop at 3702 River Road in East Camden. Maurice and his wife Rose had had frequent intense arguments over the Unruh's use of a gate that separated their backyard from the Cohen's. Rose had also complained of Unruh keeping his bedroom radio loud until the late night hours. Unruh later claimed, quote, Mr. Cohen shortchanged him five times while Mrs. Cohen told him to turn down his music even though their son Charles was free to aggravate him with his trumpet, end quote. Unruh had grievances with several other individuals, including, quote, the man and woman who lived below him and threw trash on his back lot, the barber who put dirt in a vacant yard that backed up the drainage and flooded his cellar, the shoemaker who buried trash close to his property, and a mystery boy named Sorg who tapped his electricity to light up the Christmas trees he was selling on the street, end quote. In addition to being angry, Unruh was extremely paranoid and feared that his neighbors were gossiping about him and his sexuality. Unruh, who was a closeted gay man, claimed Mr. Cohen had called him a quote-unquote queer and said that Taylor was spreading a story that, quote, he saw me go down on somebody in an alley one time, end quote, and was afraid local teenagers who often hassled him had seen him at the Family Theater in Philadelphia, a popular spot for gay men to meet. 
On the morning of September 6, 1949, following his breakfast, Unruh began threatening his mother, Frida, with a wrench. She reportedly asked him multiple times, quote, what do you want to do that for, Howard? End quote. Frida would later say Unruh appeared to be transfixed. She soon ran to a neighbor's house for safety. Unruh then gathered his Luger pistol, ammunition, a six-inch knife, and a tear gas pen and left his home on the 3200 block of River Road. He shot at a delivery man inside a bread truck but missed. Unruh then went into a shoe store and shot 27-year-old cobbler John Pilarchik twice, including once in the head. Next, he walked into the barber shop next door and shot six-year-old Oris Smith in the head as he sat on a carousel-style horse while getting his back-to-school haircut. The barber, 33-year-old Clark Hoover, who had tried to protect Oris, was also shot and killed. Oris's mother, Catherine, grabbed her son, ran into the street, and began screaming until a neighbor put them in their car and drove to the hospital. Unruh returned to the area of his apartment and shot at a boy in a window but missed. He then fired into a tavern across the street owned by Frank Eagle. No one was struck, and Eagle grabbed his own 38 caliber pistol. Engel would later say that Unruh had never come inside the bar, but that he had seen him, quote, walking straight like he had a poker in his back, and the kids on the corner would make some remarks about him, end quote. Unruh reloaded his gun and headed into the drugstore to confront the Coens. He shot 45-year-old James Hutton as he was entering the store. Inside, Unruh saw Mr. and Mrs. Cohen run upstairs to their apartment. Mrs. Cohen and their son Charles hid from Unruh in separate closets. He shot through Mrs. Cohen's closet door three times before opening it and shooting her in the face. As he walked through the apartment, he noticed Mr. Cohen's 63-year-old mother, Minnie, who was attempting to call the police. Unruh then shot her multiple times. Mr. Cohen had escaped to the porch roof, but Unruh shot him in the back, which caused him to plummet to the ground. Charles was not harmed. He continued on and killed four individuals driving by. They were 24-year-old Alvin Day, 37-year-old Helen Wilson, and her mother, 68-year-old Emma Maglock. Helen's nine-year-old son, John, was wounded and sadly died at the hospital. Unruh then proceeded to the tailor shop owned by Tom Zagrino. Inside, he found Zagrino's wife, 28-year-old Helga. She begged for her life before being shot at close range. Next door, two-year-old Thomas Hamilton was playing with a curtain inside his home when he looked out the window and was shot in the head. Unruh would go on to tell police that he mistook the moving shadows for someone he believed to be dumping trash in his yard. Unruh then broke into the home behind his apartment's lot and wounded 36-year-old Madeline Harry and her 16-year-old son Armand before running out of ammo and returning to his home. By now, police were notified and en route to the scene. A crowd of around 1,000 had gathered around Unruh's apartment. Over 50 officers surrounded the apartment building. 
Since mass shootings were essentially non-existent at the time, there was no proper police protocol. They shot at the building with machine guns, shotguns, and pistols, even though bystanders from the crowd were in the line of fire. As this was going on, Philip W. Buxton, assistant city editor of the Camden Evening Courier, found Unruh's number in the phone book and called him. Surprisingly, Unruh answered the phone and spoke with him. Buxton asked him how many people he had killed, to which Unruh replied, quote, I don't know yet. I haven't counted them, but it's a pretty but it looks like a pretty good score, end quote. Buxton then asked why he was killing people, and Unruh said he wasn't sure, but that he needed to hang up because, quote, a couple of friends are coming to get me, end quote. Police had climbed onto the roof of the building's porch and shot tear gas canisters into Unruh's apartment. Minutes later, Unruh surrendered. He yelled out that he'd be leaving his gun on his desk and walked out the back door with his hands up. Unruh was interrogated for hours by law enforcement. He claimed full responsibility for the murders and gave officials details in a detached, matter-of-fact way. Unruh told the prosecutor his resentment for his neighbors and neighborhood shopkeepers had been building for a long time and, quote, they have been making derogatory remarks about my character, end quote. Not even a day after his arrest, Unruh was voluntarily taken to the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital's criminally insane ward. He was examined by psychiatrists for weeks. Their findings were not released to the public until 2012 at the request of the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper. Unruh coldly told the team every detail of his crimes, including the list of neighbors who had quote-unquote wronged him. Though he was rather unemotional, he did say he felt sadness for the children he murdered. However, the doctors noted that he did not seem remorseful. Unruh allegedly told his doctors, quote, murder is sin and I should get the chair, end quote. It's worth noting that he was given truth serum during his sessions, so the full certainty of his claims cannot be proven. In October 1949, a Camden County judge signed a final order of commitment based on Unruh's diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. He was considered unfit to stand trial, although the murder indictment remained if he were to one day be quote-unquote cured. Author and professor Kathleen Ramslin believes Unruh actually had a personality disorder and that today he would have been found legally sane. She has said, quote, he wouldn't have been diagnosed with schizophrenia because he didn't have any actual symptoms of schizophrenia. They didn't know what else to do in those days. Back then, paranoid schizophrenia was kind of a trash can diagnosis. You could put anything in there. But the criteria have tightened up since. Unruh didn't have command hallucinations or anything like that. End quote. In just 20 minutes, Unruh had killed 13 people and wounded three. He remained at the psychiatric hospital for 60 years and never stood trial. In the years following his committal, Unruh generally stayed quiet. In 1964, he petitioned to have his indictment dismissed on the grounds of insanity, but later withdrew the petition. His father was ordered to pay $15 a month for his upkeep, and his mother visited him until her death in 1985. In 1993, he was transferred to a less regulated unit for elderly patients. He stayed there until his death on October 19, 2009. Unruh was 88 years old. On that fateful day, over 50 years prior, Unruh murdered 13 people in just 20 minutes. He never served any jail time for his crimes. 
While this is technically not the first mass shooting in America, this was the first to gain notoriety and was covered in detail by many local newspapers. In 1950, New York Times writer Meyer Berger won a Pulitzer Prize for local reporting for his work. Berger gave his $1,000 prize money to Unruh's mother. Currently, there are no plaques, memorials, or markers of any kind in the Kramer Hill neighborhood. Allegedly, no one has moved into Unruh's old apartment and the building was boarded shut when journalist Patrick Sawyer visited in 2015. Survivor Charles Cohen, whose parents and grandmother were all murdered by Unruh, told the Philadelphia Inquirer magazine in 1999 that even at 62, he was still haunted by the killings and that modern mass shootings brought back the same pain he felt on that terrible morning. Conan died just one month after Unruh. Ironically, Cohen's granddaughter, Carly Novel, survived the 2018 shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, by hiding in a closet, just like her grandfather did. Del, what are your thoughts on the mass shooting committed by Howard Unruh? This is one of the cases that I unfortunately was familiar with because I was familiar with the area that he did it in. And it's one of those cases of someone can seem so normal and their behaviors can seem so normal, but they can extend to a level that's not healthy. And so when we think about his upbringing, when we think about his military service, the fact that he was meticulous would be something that we praise, something that you look for in a soldier. But unfortunately, due to whether it was schizophrenia or personality disorder, whatever it was, that deep-seated resentment, that hatred that he had manifested by killing 13 people and injuring another three, including a two-year-old who was just looking out the window. And I know he has said something to the effect of he was really sad about the children that he killed, but I think the fact that he didn't show remorse, the fact that he at one point was trying to be released and not like, oh, I'm good to stand trial now. I can be held accountable for my actions through the legal process, it was, oh, I spent enough time in a psychiatric institution. You can release me now. I think that's ridiculous. I definitely agree that he did not have any remorse and that he felt like he was justified in the things he did because of what I consider petty neighborhood grievances that he had, that we likely all had with our neighbors at a certain point. That doesn't give you the right to murder anyone. And I think the fact that it definitely seemed targeted in a lot of ways, like the fact that he included the Coens who he had a major problem with in this killing spree, just speaks to the fact that he wasn't as criminally insane as it was made out. And I definitely agree with the writer when she says that he likely would have been held accountable for his actions if his crime had been committed in modern times versus back in the early 1900s. What are your thoughts? 
It's really scary to see hatred and anger in someone just build up like this and get taken out because you're right. A lot of this stuff seemed really petty and I don't have the exact details and I understand him being paranoid, you know, about his sexuality, especially at that time. But it seems like there probably could have been other ways for him and the neighbors to come to some sort of compromise or agreement on these issues that he was having. And like you said, we all are annoyed by something our neighbors or somebody in the neighborhood does to some regard. That's normal. But what's not normal is killing people because of that. And it really shows, I think, the extent of his mental health issues, which I do think were probably worsened by the war. And like you said, Del, it's interesting how his attention to detail and his ability to take orders was so good for him in the military. But then that same ability to be meticulous kind of probably like mentally hurt him. And we see it still expressed in this crime. It was very much like, I know what I'm doing. I have a plan and I'm shooting to kill these people. And it's really upsetting to hear about these innocent people that died, especially so many children too. It's upsetting. And I can't imagine what the country or people in the city of Camden felt at this time because like we've said multiple times and we're going to say again, stuff like this didn't happen back then. And people thought Howard Unruh was just one crazy person and we're going to go on with their lives and this isn't going to be a normal thing. And now how many years later, this is a normal thing. And it's, it's something no one should have to deal with. I do find it very strange that he was never like reevaluated later so that he could stand trial. I don't know if that's something maybe people try to advocate for and it just didn't work out or what, but I guess it does kind of show once again, like we've said many times, how people with mental health issues were treated and how not seriously mental health was really taken at that time in our history. Like we mentioned, this was one of the first mass shootings in America to gain media attention. A mass shooting is an incident of targeted violence carried out by one or more shooters at one or more public or populated locations. Multiple victims, both injuries and fatalities, are associated with the attack and both the victims and locations are chosen either at random or for their symbolic value. The event occurs within a single 24-hour period, though most attacks typically last only a few minutes. The motivation of this shooting must not correlate with gang violence or targeted militant or terroristic activity. Catherine Ramsland, who we mentioned was a professor of forensic psychology and the director of the Master of Arts in Criminal Justice program at DeSalle University, as well as an author, said, quote, Unruh really matches the mass murder profile. He had a rigid temperament, an inability to accept frustration or people not treating him as well as he wanted, and a feeling of isolation, all things people accept and move on from. End quote. Unruh's massacre was a watershed crime, but it's been usurped by other deadlier shooters of the television and internet age. Many consider the 1966 University of Texas shooting as one of the most notable early mass shootings. This 96-minute mass shooting left 17 dead, including the shooter, 30 wounded, and many more maimed. The U.S., with 5% of the world's population, was found to have nearly one-third of the world's mass shootings from 1966 to 2012. Before that, mass gun murders like Unruh's were too rare to be considered a threat. 
From 1966 to 2020, there have been around 402 mass shootings, according to the Rockefeller Institute of Government. Of those, 95.7% were committed by a man and over half were white. The average age of the perpetrators was 33. Around 74% used handguns in their crimes, and a majority of mass shootings took place at work or a school. According to Every Town for Gun Safety, mass shootings are often perpetrated by someone who was legally prohibited from possessing a firearm, perpetrated by someone who displayed prior warning signs like engaging in recent acts or threats of violence, or violating a protection order intermingled with acts of domestic violence and far deadlier when they involve assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Between 2009 and 2020, 1,363 people in the United States were killed and 947 more were wounded in 240 mass shootings, an average of 20 shootings each year. Among the casualties were at least 362 children and teens killed, as well as 21 law enforcement officers killed and 35 wounded. The destructive reach of a mass shooting stretches far beyond those killed and wounded, damaging the well-being of survivors, their families, and communities. Studies of survivors from various mass shootings consistently find that mass shootings harm the mental health of both direct survivors and community members, including psychological symptoms like post-traumatic stress and depression. Even those living far away, such as those watching coverage of a mass shooting on the news, can experience increased fear of crime or victimization and uncertainty about their safety at school and in the community. Mass shooting response also burdens healthcare systems, local economies, and taxpayers. One researcher estimated that the cost of the Las Vegas mass shooting would be at least $600 million after tallying costs such as medical and mental health care, police work, work loss, and employer expenses and quality of life. The fear of mass shootings only increases these costs. One investigation found that since Columbine, at least 811 million federal dollars have been spent to help school districts hire security guards. Let's take a brief look at guns and gun control in the United States. In 1791, the Bill of Rights was ratified, which included the Second Amendment and the right which is the right to bear arms. Well into the 1970s, the general legal and academic consensus was that it was a relic of the 18th century. Private gun ownership widely grew following the Civil War and a surplus of guns. Guns went from being advertised as tools next to plows in agricultural magazines to being marketed as central to American masculinity and essential for protecting family and property. By the early 1900s, 43 states limited or banned firearms in public places. Gun control would become sharply divisive only with the Federal Gun Control Act of 1968, which was made law after the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert F. Kennedy. The legislation limited interstate sales of firearms, but did too little to satisfy gun control advocates, including President Lyndon Johnson. 
Ryan Bussey, a former gun industry executive and author, said the modern gun industry was born after the 1999 Columbine school shooting in Colorado, which left 13 victims dead. In 2021, NPR published secret tapes that revealed the National Rifle Association representatives talking about their response to the shooting. As Bussey sums up those conversations, said, quote, they basically had debates behind the scenes about, okay, do we give in and be conciliatory, or do we basically use these sorts of events to stir up hatred and fear and division and all the stuff that rules our politics now? And they obviously chose the latter, end quote. In 2004, Congress let the federal assault weapons ban lapse, allowing previously restricted types of semi-automatic rifles and high-capacity magazines to be sold. The following year, President George W. Bush signed the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, which says gun manufacturers and dealers can't be sued for harm for harms caused by the quote-unquote criminal or unlawful misuse of firearm products. The multiplication of quote-unquote stand-your-ground laws marked another shift in American attitudes with Florida taking the lead in 2005. Today, 34 states give gun owners the right to use deadly force outside of the home with no duty to retreat or use other means to protect themselves. Harrell Shapira, a University of Texas sociologist, said, quote, the laws make it much easier for a person to legally kill someone, and they credit the laws with the quote-unquote militarization of everyday life. Bussey argues the election of President Barack Obama and conspiracy theories, including birtherism and false claims that the Obama administration was planning to seize or restrict the sales of guns, marked another turning point in the gun industry's group. According to a 2020 Gallup poll, 44% of American households own a firearm. In a 1999 poll, most gun owners said that they kept guns for hunting and target shooting. Only 26% cited protection as paramount. By 2015, however, 63% cited self-defense as a primary motivation for gun ownership, according to a 2015 National Firearms Survey. The director of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, Josh Horitsky, said, quote, the gun lobby thrives on fear and drives fear, end quote. The United States is not the only country with mental illness, domestic violence, or hate-fueled ideologies, but our gun homicide rate is 26 times higher than the other high-income countries. The difference is the easy access to guns. Research has shown that U.S. states with weaker gun laws and higher gun ownership rates have higher rates of mass shootings. There's also the issue of assault weapons. When assault weapons and high-capacity magazines were used in mass shootings, they resulted in far more deaths and injuries. Between 2009 and 2020, the five deadliest mass shooting incidents in the U.S. all involved the use of assault weapons and or high-capacity magazines, and they were Las Vegas, Orlando, Newtown, Sutherland, Springs, and El Paso. Closing loopholes in our federal and state background check laws can prevent guns from ending up in the hands of those who are legally prohibited from having a firearm.
extreme risk laws are one such opportunity. Sometimes referred to as quote unquote red flag laws. These laws empower loved ones and law enforcement who recognize warning signs to petition a court to temporarily restrict a person's access to firearms when they pose a significant risk of using them to cause harm. Research shows extreme risk laws are effective in saving lives, especially in cases of firearm suicide. Del, what are your thoughts on anything that we just talked about related to mass shootings or gun history and gun control? Guns and really anything involving them is such a minefield in so many ways because you have individuals who are definitely very passionate about the Second Amendment, what it says, the fact that everyone should have guns and there should be no restrictions. And then you have people on the complete opposite side that says the Second Amendment should be abolished. No one has the right to a gun. And I think I'm somewhere in the middle where I definitely think that the Second Amendment is something that we have. I do think that a reading of it lends support to the idea that individual citizens have the constitutional right to have guns. I just think that we need to have better gun control to make sure that legal gun ownership is respected, but we are, like we stated before, we're not allowing those that should not have guns able to purchase them. And that includes closing loopholes. That includes having those red flag laws, having better background checks, making sure that we have a comprehensive list of crimes that automatically exclude people from gun ownership, and making sure that there's not a time restriction on that. For example, I think that if you get convicted of a violent crime, I think that like voting, you lose that right. And I always find it strange that the same people that would say, if you're a criminal, you don't get the vote, you have lost that privilege, would not say the same thing about gun ownership. It's very weird. To me, there are actions that you can commit that completely removes your right to own a firearm. I always find it interesting when the U.S. is compared to other countries when it comes to gun violence and just our incidents of mass shootings. I think in a lot of ways, it is a fair comparison, especially if you're looking at it from a GDP perspective. And it's absolutely true that the United States and other countries, specifically European countries, have similar interests of ideology being hateful, domestic violence, mental illness, all the other things that go into why someone may not be in the right mental state or have committed actions not to have a gun. But I think that we have this love for guns that these other countries don't have. And I think that our history lends itself more that that love of guns will never go away. I don't personally like guns. I would personally never own a gun, but I also 
don't support, you know, completely eliminating it from American society. I think that in a lot of ways, it's a two for one special when it comes to America and the love of guns. What are your thoughts on it? I agree with pretty much everything that you said. The gun culture in this country is very bizarre to me. And I also don't like guns. I never grew up around guns. So maybe that gives me some bias, but it's just very foreign to me. And I don't really see why so many people feel the need to have guns. I know we talked about self-defense and protection, but what does the average person need so much protection from? I don't really understand that. And I definitely agree that the NRA thrives off people's fear. And I think that's absolutely disgusting. And I truly hope to see that organization suffer because I think they are incredibly corrupt and heinous. And of course, that's not to say that every person that owns a gun is like a bad, irresponsible person, because that is not the case at all. There's tons of people that are responsible, that have proper training, that hide their guns when there are children in the house. They don't just keep guns out and about wherever they want. And I totally support them having the right to bear arms. That's fine with me. But like you said, Del, there are so many people that should not be allowed to have guns getting guns and getting guns very easily. And that really scares me. And it it makes no sense. I know a lot of people, when they talk about gun laws, it's common sense laws or common sense gun laws. And it really is just common sense. Why is someone that has been charged with domestic violence or some other type of violent crime allowed to have a gun. It doesn't make any sense to me. I also think that gun owners should go through, I think more of like a, maybe like some kind of training on like proper, and maybe this already exists. I don't think it does, but like a proper handling of guns, like some kind of like course you have to pass too. I think that would be really helpful and would probably deter a lot of people. Yeah. I think it would deter a lot of people from purchasing a gun. I don't think we'll ever fully be able to stop guns getting into the hands of the wrong people, partially because of all these loopholes, but I don't think we'll ever fully be able to stop people, the bad people, quote unquote, bad people from getting guns. But with more gun control laws, I think that it would really save a lot of people's lives. And I think time and time again, the American public has shown that they support gun control and gun laws and these common sense laws. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me that so many people can so easily get a gun and it varies state by state. But it's frustrating. And I hope to see us make a change. But I don't know. Honestly, gun control is something that kind of makes me feel a little hopeless sometimes. And seeing all these mass shootings be regular. I mean, I think every person in this country has at this point probably been probably has been afraid to go somewhere or do something and thought, you know, what if something bad happens to me here, like a mass shooting. And you and I talked about in the one episode where there was a, a fire at the bar in New England about looking for the exits. I look for the exits when I go places and mass shootings are a reason why. It makes me sad that people have to live in a world like this, especially children. 
it's so much stress and anxiety that these children do not need to have and nobody in this country needs to have. And it was really surprising, I think, to hear how even people just like watching the news can have like their mental health affected by mass shootings. And I mean, it makes sense, but I guess actually to see like research on it is kind of mind blowing. And then to hear about all these like financial statistics and of course, like you know, when it comes down to it, safety shouldn't be at a cost. But to hear what the effect has on like the local economy or like what gets taken was pretty interesting for me to see. And I think, and this is just my opinion, that at this point in our society and our communities, I think people are more fearful of a mass shooting happening at a public location than they are of a fire happening at a public location. And that's really just how we have isolated guns into this special category where if something negative happens around it, we sort of just kind of accept it. It's, oh, we can do nothing about it. This can't be changed. But if we use the example of the station nightclub fire or the other building fires that we've talked about on the podcast, there were regulations put in place almost immediately or at least strengthened if there were already some in place. You know, there was capacity limits put on public places. There was the regulations around making sure that you have exits, that they're marked and clear and that people know how to safely exit as a result of these disasters. And guns don't get that same type of very quick turnaround uh, regulation to make sure that future shootings are prevented. And for me, when it comes to the gun control and what needs to happen, I really like the analogy of driving. So a car is a deadly weapon, right? No, it's not its primary purpose. Yes, millions of people use it in a legal way. But in order to drive legally, you must prove that you understand the regulations around it, that you understand how to use it safely. And at a certain point, you need to reaffirm that with the government. And I'm not sure why those same regulations that we use for cars are not used for guns. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I absolutely agree. And I wanted to mention real quick, I said I'm not a gun person and I don't understand why the average person would want or should be allowed to have an assault weapon or like a high capacity, what is it? A high magazine capacity. I don't understand why the average person would even want a assault weapon or a high capacity magazine. And further, I don't understand why they would be allowed to have it. To me, that's something that strictly should just be used by the military. The average person should not have access to that. They're meant truly just to kill. And I think a lot of these, like, you can't use that for hunting. Like, if you want to completely destroy the animal and just kill it to kill it, I guess that's why you would use it for hunting. But they have no other purpose than destruction. So... Why are we giving these out? 
And I, of course, it's not just like, you know, people going up to like the, any street corner and like someone selling a, a assault weapon. But I don't understand that. That is disturbing to me. No comment. I completely agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about Howard Unruh. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on John List. As always, stay safe.